Don't have a whole bunch of weights in your basement like I do, or access to a gym, very expensive. And besides, you know, who likes to drive to the gym? That just seems like a waste of time to me. Anyway, more importantly, you want to get stronger. We're going to tell you how you can do that without having to lift a bunch of weights on today's episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting feet first, typically, because those things are your foundation, although the rest of this thing has to work too. Um, We break down the mythology and the propaganda, and sometimes just the flat out lies you've been told about what it takes to have a well to walk or run or play or do yoga or crossfit or um, we actually just had someone scale a building in france uh, whatever it is you like to do and to do that enjoyably effectively efficiently did i mention enjoyably trick question i know i did because look if you're not having fun you're not going to keep it up so find a way to have some fun doing whatever it is you're doing um, i am Stephen sashin ceo of zeroshoes.com there's shoes behind me your host of the podcast and we call it the movement movement, because we, that's all of us, are creating a movement, that's all of us, more about that in a second, about natural movement, basically helping people rediscover that natural movement is the obvious, better, healthier choice, just the way we currently think of natural food. That's the second movement part. The first part is getting that message out there that involves you. You don't have to do anything, doesn't cost anything, but well, you do have to do something. Go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. There's no membership fee. There's no secret handshake. Basically, it just means share. So like and give us a thumbs up and leave us a review, all those things you know how to do. Basically, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. Now, by the way, when you go there, you'll find previous episodes too, and there's a bunch of them apparently. So enjoy and have fun. Okay. Um, Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Do me a favor. Tell people who the hell you are and what in God's name you do. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Aaron Saft. I am a jack of all trades and master of none. I formerly owned a run shop. Once COVID hit, I turned that over to my business partner. I've been a coach for 20 something years now, a running coach. I am a trail maintainer, a dad, um, a runner, <laughs> a podcaster, a YouTuber. <laughs> so I'm, like I said, a jack of all trade and master of none. And you're living in perhaps the narrowest room I have ever seen. <laughs> yeah, this is a, this a little nook that uh, I have in my bedroom that I converted into like a stand-up desk area oh, to, I love uh, it. to do all my work. <laughs> and and you got like a topo math behind you and you yes. got some entertaining yeah. things on, the, on your walls for people yeah, who so, are watching. Uh, starting back here to my right, this is is um, my ode to Hard Rock. Um, this is my finisher poster here. Um, these are the Smokies here, and I have another topo to my left. That's uh, my area here in Western North Carolina. Above that is my uh, my UTMB poster. Uh, so you know some of this stuff around me is all you know running memorabilia or you know things that I have a affinity for and. You know, this is my workspace, so I try to you know put it in like my happy space too, so I don't feel like it's constantly work. <laughs> no, I love it. Um, so before we we get into what I teased, which is about uh, stronger without weights. So you know, you used to own a, a run shop. That's a big, interesting thing. Most people are used to being the customer side of that. Can you give us some inside scoop? Things that people should know. Things that people don't know. Like you know, um, r- running store confidential kind of things. Sure. Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, you know, it is a very tough industry to to be in. So, you know, supporting mom and pop shops are, are great because uh, you know margins are tough. You know, there's there's a lot of costs if if you have employees and you know and uh, you know all of your utilities and stuff. So, you know, the the inventory costs a lot of money, and you know having that overhead, it's it's difficult because 
you only have a certain amount of time to pay it. So you're hoping that you can sell everything that you've ordered in that, you know, in that time period to, so that you can pay that bill. So it's, you know, it's, it's a really tough industry to be into, um, you know, especially since shoes are updated very frequently, you know, kind of like you and I talked about on, on our, our podcast together, it's, uh, things, you know, they go out of style and then people want the newest one, but you still have the old one. So it's, you know, it's, you're losing even more margins because you have to put it on sale. So you get rid of it. So you have the new stuff. It's, it really is. It's a, it's a very, really tough industry to be into. And, you know, you don't necessarily have the right color, you know, so, and, and then you're competing, you know, with a lot of the, uh, the online markets and such. So I was relieved <laughs> when I was, when I was able to turn the keys over to my, uh, my business partner and he's doing extremely well, you know, having two owners was just, it was difficult to, uh, to really supply two, you know, salaries to, uh, to, you know, the owners. So having, um, just one salary, I think, has been the, the difference in the success of the store. So yeah, I, I wasn't really built for retail. I love people and, and communicating with people, but I found myself more and more on the backside, just stuck on a computer, you know, going through inventory, you know, emails and such, where I did, I wasn't getting as much one-on-one experience. So being an employee would have been a totally different experience because I probably would have been doing more of what I wanted to do. But being an owner. Not so much. <laughs> so it's, well, it's it's enjoyable now. My joke is if you want to take a break from running, uh, start a running shoe company. That's so, right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. I am intimately connected <laughs> to my computer here. How did you get into the biz? Um, so I'll start way back. Um, when I was in middle school and high school, uh, I grew up in Middletown, New York, where Frank Shorter came from. And um, my local run shop was owned by Frank Giannino. Giannino, who previously owned the Transcon record. And so I had this, you know, running role models, you know, left and right. And, uh, you know, I saw what Frank had and what he did. And I was like, that's really cool. You know, I'd I'd love to do that someday. And, um, you know, fast forward through college, I didn't do, you know, business school or anything like that. I didn't think I'd, you know, go into running retail. But, um, you know, post-collegiately, my wife was in medical school and we were in Blacksburg, Virginia, where Virginia Tech is. And, um, she was doing her thing. So I had lots of time because <laughs> when your wife's in medical school, you have nothing but time to yourself. <laughs> so I was a teacher and a coach. I taught middle school and high school and, and coached um, high school. And there was a local run shop, a really good friend, James DeMarco. Um, he owns Runabout Sports. And um, my best friend is uh, it was the manager, Scott Sosha. And I, I would go in and, and work part-time in, in my spare time and help them out. And, and Scott and I, you know, we get, became really good friends. And uh, he said, you know, what's, what's your dream? And I said, I would love to own a run shop of my own someday. And wait, hold on, wait, pa- wait pause there. Yeah. What, was it, what was his response to that? And I'll, I'll preface this by saying when Lane and I started Zero Shoes seven months in, we had some guys who, who'd been in footwear for you know 35 years who said, we believe in you and what you're doing. And we would start this business with you, but we've been in footwear so long that we're not stupid <laughs> enough to try and start a shoe company. So what was his response when you said, I'd love to own a run store? Well, he, you know, he had been the manager and seen a lot of that aspects of it. And he, um, he was like, you know, I, I would love to do the same someday. And, you know, so he had the same aspirations. Mm. Fast forward a few years, um, he became friends with um, Jamie Dick, who owned, well, at the time, FootRx. And uh, that was in Abingdon, Virginia. And Jamie, back in the day when Runner's World used to have its its forums and it had footwear forums, Jamie was the shoe guy. So you asked Jamie back then and he would, you know, tell you all about shoes. Scott became friends with him. Jamie's also a physical therapist and a podorthist and trained Scott to become a podorthist. So Scott came up with the business model to have a podorthic clinic and then a running footwear store. 
and asked me if I would come in with him and take you know the run side of it. So that's how we formed and we we did a licensing agreement and formed FooterX Asheville. And so in 2007, we opened our doors right before this recession hit. <laughs> so, yeah, good times. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was lean for a few years and then you know we slowly grew and I, you know, I spent 13 years uh, with FooterX. And like I said, just when the pandemic hit, it was the right time for for me to step away because it was either you know sink or swim. And yeah. uh, you know, if, if the two of us stayed, it would have sank. So you know, fortunately, with him going forward, it, it's swimming and it's 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 swimming exceedingly well. <laughs> oh, that's good for him. Yeah. Uh, so you know, this is an interesting thing. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you say because I've never had a conversation like this with someone. There's things that I've said about mm-hmm. what I think happens because of conversations sure. I've had with people who work in stores. Right. I'm dying to know what it's like from the inside. Yeah. So the thing I loved about Scott is his personality and he could take the stick that was the furthest up somebody's crack and really just wrench it out. And they would be smiling when they left. And I don't know how he did it. He has this Jedi mind trick. You know, he was like, you know, he would wave his hand and say, you will not smoke. And they would go home and never smoke again. Cause he was just, <laughs> he was phenomenal. I loved Scott for that reason. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of what I learned, and this is, you know, for me personally was by observing. I observed Scott. I observed his interaction and how he dealt with people. When I caught into the industry, here's Aaron post college. You know, I was like, I came out of college and I was this hotshot. We got third at NCAAs, you know, in cross country and, and won ACCs all five years I was there. So I was this like hotshot runner, you know. And uh, you know, people would come in and say, oh, "I finished my first 5K." And and back then, Aaron, I'm like, whatever, you know. <laughs> Fast forward, you know observing Scott, I was like, oh, you know, like I, I have to be empathetic. I have to show compassion. I like, I, and then I learned that's awesome. You know, like that's, it took me, it took me a while of observing and learning like, oh, people, you know, their, their successes are awesome as well. So I learned through observation. Now our employees, not only did they learn through observation because I, I was really starting to take on a, a persona of my own, but we would interact uh, with them, we would say, okay, I want you to fit me and I'm going to critique you on how you fit me and the questions you ask and how you respond to them. And then, you know, with Scott's understanding of the foot, ankle, and the mobility of it, he would, you know, give a lot of workshops. Here's what this shoe is supposed to do. Here's what we're looking for it to do. Here's what we want it to do. And this would be for who it's for. So he would try to fill in this gambit of what footwear was for. The store has evolved. And I credit that to not only Scott, but one of the other gentlemen that worked there. They've become very, and you'll be pleased to hear very more into like the naturalist movement and and getting into more natural footwear, more minimal footwear so that the foot can function rather than be locked up by this, you know, more orthotic device, if you will. So it totally has evolved. And that's, you know, that's how the the footwear industry has evolved as well, because when we started this. Well, I would argue the opposite. In fact, I mean, in a way, for those of us who are making footwear, that's all about natural movement. You know, our businesses are growing, growing, growing. But I was just at the running event, which is for people who don't know, which is pretty much everybody listening. um, It's a trade show just for run specialty stores. So running shoe stores, some outdoor stores as well, more of them lately. But there was a, a thing that footwear news published of, you know, the top shoes of the, of the, the show. And happily, we were one of those shoes. Um, Every other one of those shoes looked identical 
You could swap the logos, nobody would ever know. And they were all, you know, two and a half, three inches thick. So, and one of the things that amazed me was one of the companies, I don't remember even which one it was, their booth just said, more of what you're asking for, you know, in a giant three inch thing. <laughs> it's like no one was ever asking for that. You, someone came up with the idea and told the story about how it's good for you, despite the fact that the evidence shows that it's not, and then pushed it on people. Um, and it became a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that the stores started carrying more of it. That's all people were seeing. It's an easy story. Don't you want more cushioning, even though, again, it doesn't work? Um, and so it, you know, it was totally foisted upon people at first. And now, you know, now literally every company, the exact same product. So you know, the fact that you guys made it had an evolutionary change is a testament to, I mean, I'll ask you, I'm going to make an assumption that it's your willingness to look at reality, data, research, et cetera, rather than just thinking, well, here's the thing that's going to sell. So that's what we have to carry. Right, right. Well, part of what we believed, and I believe is still the mission there, if we look at the mission statement, is that we wanted to educate people as to what would be best for them in the long run literally in the long run. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, like it's, it has come, you know, the, our, our wall used to be just like you were saying these, what we would have termed the everyday trainer, right? Your, right. your ASICs, your new balance, all these shoes, but there's Some, you know, something that basically um, looked like this kind of prototypical. Shape. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, just, and so when I say evolved now, those pegs, it, we had a you know wall that had pegs for the shoes. You would see that it started to filter in you know, we started with, with lems, lems came in and then we had you guys came in on the sandals and then your, um, you know, your, your run shoes made it this way onto the wall. Vivo barefoot has made its way onto the wall. So like I said, you know, where all of the pegs used to be these just, you know, clunkier, um, running shoes. Yeah. Now it's, it's broken up by these models that, you know, have a more natural pattern. So that, that's what I mean in, in the evolution of our shoe wall yeah. and the evolution of our education, because, you know, there like Joe Quinlan, who's, he's also a pedorthist to define pedorthist for those that don't understand, um, because it gets mixed up sometimes a pedorthist is simply a lab rat. He creates <laughs> devices for shoes. And that's exactly how Scott would define. It. He is the lab rat. Yeah. So he creates things for, you know, if, if somebody comes in with a prescription for, you know, from a doctor saying, I need you to relieve this symptom, you know, they may say, well, we could create the vice or we could use something like correct toes or create more space in your toe box. Like, simple measures rather than fabricating something and, you know, maybe perhaps disabling the arch. Right. Um, so, and these guys are, they're thinking outside the pedorthic box when we right. talk about pedorthics, because that's not your typical pedorthist. So I really, I admire what they're trying to do within their, their own profession, if you will, because they will, they'll go to their, you know, annual convention and folks are like, the hell are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like we've got this tradition. Why are you bumping it? You know, but they're getting better results. That's the key is, yeah. is finding these better results. So, you know, and that's what I mean by evolution is just, they have really come a long way and, and they're, they're doing what's best for the person and the customer, not what's going to go in. And it, it was never about what goes in our cash register. That wasn't what we were after is we were there to serve the community and educate them. And I think they've continued that and their footwear and their, I guess, ancillary items like the correct toes and such, you know, that's what will make the difference in their business, man. Cause people, you know, once they feel a difference, once they, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, I have relief. 
And it was this easy, right. you know, they're, they're, that's your best advertisement. They're, they're going to tell everybody who well, you got to go to footer X, <laughs> you know? So yeah. it's, it's, guys, it's been amazing. If somebody walked in with a, with a prescription for an orthotic and you, you know, you looked at them and could tell, I mean, the thing of course that people don't realize is that, well, there's two things about orthotics. One is the original idea was here's a thing to use if you have some foot injury and it's like putting a cast on your arm, you need to recover by letting things rest for a little while. Um, but you're never supposed, the idea was never that you're supposed to wear these full-time for the rest of your life right, until right. some guy came up with this idea of posting the foot and putting it in some quote proper alignment. Right. And then everyone realized, oh, wow, we can sell a ton of these things and make a fortune. I mean, people just don't realize where that came from. If somebody came in with a prescription for an orthotic and you evaluated them, did you ever push back to the referring physician and go, hey, FYI, or after the person had a better experience in something that was allowing them to move naturally, did you ever report back and go, just so you know? Mm -hmm. And if so, what was that like? What happened? Yeah. So one of the cool things that I really, again, admire is that we do lunch and learns or we used to, they still do. Right. <laughs> I, I'm removed, but they, they do lunch and learns with physicians, right? Because we have these people referring and they let them know here's availability. Here's what can happen with, you know, using this, you know, it's, it's like, I mean, if you look at some of the brands, they have, they have a medical like branch, right? So New Balance yeah. has like a medical division. They have, you know, even Hoka and the Altra has, you know, these these medical referrals. And so like we introduce these things to the physicians saying these are tools that can be used for certain circumstances. So you understand. And if you want to discuss them, you know, you can say like you know, write down your, you know, on a script pad and say, this is what's going on. And it became this is what's going on. You guys do what's best oh, nice. <laughs> because nice. we were educating them because, you know, maybe let's go even back 10 years. A person had a wider foot. What did you prescribe? A new balance because that was the right. only one that it really had a wide, right? Yeah. So, you know, well, it and, was like, and to be fair, it was wider at the ball of the foot, but then mm -hmm. tapered. So it's still squeezing your toes right. together, but at least yep. it started out from a wider place. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, we've gone from this where it was the doctor just saying, go get new balance. You know, now it's well for direct, it's go to these guys. They're going to take care of you. I'm going to tell them what's wrong. They're going to tell you what, what to you do. Know, they can do. And if they have any like concerns, it's a two-way street, right? Like, so if, if they go back to the doctor and something's just not quite right, they may mm -hmm. say, you know, like this was a great avenue to start with, but I think we need to X, Y, or Z, right? It's the medical working with the, you know, the retail side of things, you, which you, is the way it should be. Well, yeah, but you also know that that is unbelievably rare. Yes. No. And that's, that's what makes FooderX so distinct is yeah. just, you know, that was Scott's vision. And I credit him for that because, you know, he had the foresight to say, if we meld these two, we yeah. will be onto something that nobody else will do or has done. So what would happen if, you know, a, a rep from one of these footwear companies that makes a big padded motion control elevated heel thing comes <laughs> in and tells you how to sell the shoe? What, how would you, what, how, what would you guys do? We've, we've had too many conversations. I, I'm and, sure. And, yes. I won't rag on any brands, but we had a rep come in and tell me, you guys are missing the boat. This is the shoe. You guys are going to make so much money off this. And I said, we're not interested. And they said, what? 
Like I looked at the rep. I'm I'm not even going to declare anything further than that. And I said, it's a piece of garbage. (laughs) And for me to make that statement against the top selling shoe, yeah, she thought twice about coming into my store and telling me <laughs> what to sell in my shop because I, I said, listen, I've got an idea for what's appropriate for running that shoe that you're trying to present to me. It's not it. you know. And I was honest. And after that, we had open, honest conversations. She took into account what I was expecting and what I wanted on my wall. And she understood I didn't care about the dollar point. right? And that's the way that it should be is- yeah what's better for the runner not what's hot what are they going to advertise that shouldn't be what what's you know i hate seeing that that's what kids are after right yeah like kids especially at their age you know being so uh, so young and so uh, so moldable it's like we just start locking them up so early so and when they come to me they're like you know i saw a young man earlier and you know i, I was working with him just briefly as a coach and i listened to his foot strike Boom, 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 boom. And I looked down at his shoes and he's got real thick ones. Again, not mm-hmm. mentioning brands, but I said, you don't need all that shoe. I said, you know, your footfall is so heavy. I said, let's let's work on getting a, like a lighter, you know, lighter weight shoe and working on your, your form, your footfall. Let's get you jump roping so that you're quicker on your feet and lighter. I said, because listen, when you go running, I shouldn't hear all that sound. So like these kids get so they get caught up in in what they see, you know, the yeah. social media, the advertising. I mean, I understand. I understand that's what they see. And they see, you know, all these professional athletes and stuff that are wearing it. So it's, you know, well, it's, it's going to take a lot more education. <laughs> it's going to, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. I don't know what it's going to ultimately take because it's evolved so much since the 70s. I mean, we're now there are a number of brands that are so iconic people have their identity tied in with that brand. And that's a very challenging thing to unwind. And even if you show someone that they're getting hurt from wearing that product and there's better product that would get them out of that injury pattern, um, it's it's wired to their identity. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very tricky thing. The um, It's amazing. There are things that companies do other than just, hey, this is a bestseller. People are going to come in and beg for it. The other thing is, hey, we're going to do some uh, gait analysis. We're going to put you on a treadmill and then magically determine which of these three different types of shoes is right for you, despite the fact that the people who developed that study uh, or that methodology for testing and selling know that it doesn't produce positive results. Know that it doesn't turn into something where the customer ends up in a shoe that reduces injury or improves performance. They know it. And yet they still do it because in a similar vein, I guess you could say that the corporation has an identity that they're tied in with that idea and they can't separate themselves from it, despite the fact that they know it has no efficacy. Right. Well, and let me go full disclosure here. When Vibram hit the market with the five fingers, yeah, we did not bring it in because we saw that it was, it was a, like everybody was jumping on. It was this huge moneymaker. We weren't sure where it was going, and we, yeah. you know, we sure didn't know how people were going to do with it because we kept seeing, you know, people just do too much too quickly, and sometimes they just, you know, got hurt. So we, we were, we were cautious about the five fingers. So we didn't jump on that ship right away either. So you know, on that side of it, I have to be completely honest. We weren't like on that front side either. So sure. it took us a while to come to where the current store is now. You know, in in hindsight, it could have been the beginning of that you know evolution if we would have started it then and understood a little bit more, but we didn't. So, in full disclosure, you know, it took us a little bit longer to get there. I think I don't know that that's necessarily problematic because I would I would contend that 
And I said this to Tony Post, who was the CEO of Vibram when that shoe came out. I said, I mean, this is when I first met the guy. This is 11 years ago. And I think the first thing I said to him practically after he said something very kind to me, <laughs> I said, <laughs> you guys are totally dropping the ball on education. And he and he nodded his head just like you are. He goes, yeah, you're right. I mean, things were moving so fast and people had the idea that all you had to do is put on that shoe or any shoe and life would instantly be better. You never had to change anything, do anything different. They couldn't overcome that. And that was a, aside from the fact that to your point, people were just putting on that shoe and just going for a run as if nothing had changed. And as we've alluded to um, in this conversation so far, it's really about the form, not the footwear. It's just that certain footwear engenders certain form and others prevent certain form. Um, people didn't have that in their head and they wouldn't have liked it if they did anyway. And then it was a finicky shoe. I mean, if that thing had fit me, I would have never started zero shoes, but it never did. And I kept trying it on every six months, sort of like when you go to the fridge late at night and you don't find what you want and you close it. And then you look again five minutes later as if it's a psychic replicator. Um, you know, I kept trying it on, never fit me. So then I, you know, here we are. And it was a tricky product to fit. It was a very expensive product yeah. to deal with. Not, I mean, expensive to the consumer, expensive to the seller because of how much time you had to take with people, that what the return and exchange rate was, um, what the failure rate was. I mean, that was, on the one hand, it built the industry, if you will. On the other hand, it crippled it at the same time. I don't know if you remember um, Tony's first go at uh, Topo, where he oh, had yeah. the big toe was separate. Yeah, separate toe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Great idea. Um, yeah. But just, you know, no one was willing to sell it and no one was willing to buy new right. stocks to, you yep. know, have your big yeah, toe. Have the big, yeah. So yeah. it was, I mean, you know, and then, uh, you know, to his credit, he closed it off and tried to go that way. But, it's been an interesting, like just to watch what's yeah. gone on in, in the industry, you know, like it really has. I'm putting interesting in air quotes because yeah. I find it morally repugnant, frankly, is a word that I would use instead of interesting. Because again, I've spoken to the CEOs of billion dollar companies and they know that what they're doing has, I mean, the injury rates haven't changed in 50 years. They know that despite all the, here I will use air quotes, advances that they have provided. <laughs> they, I was on a panel discussion that a guy from Adidas says, uh, we're trying to improve performance and reduce injury, but we don't have proof that we can do that because designing that study would be, it would be very expensive, very time consuming, have a lot of confounding factors. And I'm thinking, dude, if you could make a shoe better than the guy sitting next to you, that's worth billions of dollars a year. And you're saying you haven't done it because it's difficult. It's like, <laughs> no, no, no. You haven't done it because you can't do it. The fundamental premise is wrong. And so when I watch people go down a path, basically I get strangely personally offended. And this was happening before I got into this business, strangely personally offended by people who make money by lying to other people. I mean, that's the bottom line. You know, I've been, I've been selling products most of my life, but I would only sell things that I completely believed in. And I would, whenever I would talk about them, I would be freakishly honest. Like I had a, there's a nutritional supplement I was helping sell. And I would say, this might do nothing for you. And if it does anything for you, you won't notice it because it's not the kind of thing that is going to be some life-changing thing where you grow a new arm or you get six <laughs> inches taller or your mortgage rate goes down. It's a fun, you know, it's basically a building block that will help you. If you believe in that idea, grab the product. And um, if anyone tells you it's going to change your life, run the other way. And, um, and I sold a lot of it because it was just the truth. It's yeah. like, if you believe in this conceptually, here you go. If you don't sure. walk away. So anyway, uh, it's, so yeah, it is, let's just say it's a fascinating industry. It, it is, um, it is. is well, one it, way of putting it. Too. Yeah. I mean, you have these uh, over-the-counter insole companies yeah. that, that come in and they educate you, they educate your staff, kind of. 
well oh yeah oh yes they, they so in the they, education they tell, you, they tell or, you things they want you to say i was gonna say brainwashing um, <laughs> um so they, they brainwash you into believing that you know this is for every foot every shoe yeah so uh, again i don't mean to slight any company don't want to say any names but you know, they tell you if you're not selling a pair of these with each shoe, then you're an idiot and you're losing money. So again, you know, it, credit to to Scott and his education of his staff. That's he's like that's wrong. You know, on multiple levels, we're not just talking morally. Here's, here's the joke. Here's the joke about that. If that were so unequivocally true, if it was so scientifically demonstrably provable, don't you think the shoe companies would have already just put that in the shoe to begin with? Right. I mean, you know, <laughs> yep. it, 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 the the logic behind it is crazy because look, you you know that there's half the stores in this town. Um, if you walk in, people are just regurgitating what they heard from a salesperson. There's, I mean, you can hear it in the tone of their voice. Yep. Um, um, and ironically, some of it is a, a kind of overconfidence that just does not seem to be uh, warranted by a 20 year old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the scanners too, right? Like, you know, yeah. do, do you really need a, a scanner to tell you what your foot looks like? You know I mean? It's, it's smoke and mirrors. It's yeah. kind of like, you know, if I could compare it to something, um, it'd be like, let's see. Lost well, here, well I'll, get, I'll give you something about that. Um, there's a, a, a footwear, I don't know what to call him, a, a guy named Simon Barthold. Um, yeah. People refer to him as a footwear expert. I, I, I have some issues with that just because of some things that he said. Where actually, I'd say he may be a footwear expert, but he doesn't understand physics as well as I think that he should. Um, and, and the reason I say that, not, I don't want to just throw out a ad hominem attack. He's commented on the, these big, you know, super thick shoes, especially the Nike one. It's like, oh, the carbon fiber layer is a spring. It's like, no, it's actually not. Um, or he said, it's a lever. No, it's actually not. It can't be either just based on the construction. What it really is and what people don't know is it's there to keep the foam from ripping apart the second you use it. But so it's structural, it has nothing to do with function. Right. Um, but anyway, Simon, is someone who for years was all anti-pronation. You got to do things to, to correct pronation. And now he's not. Now he does not have a thing about pronation at all. And if you ask him why, he goes, the research, it, you know, it became clear that I was mistaken. The research says pronation is actually not a problem, but a natural function of the biomechanics of the lower extremities. And you know, that's a big move for someone like him mm -hmm. to make. Oh, totally. And I applaud him for doing so. But Despite the fact that you know a smart guy, a mostly smart guy, um, <laughs> made that giant shift, you go out into the rest of the world, and everyone you go into most running shoe stores, and people will tell you, even if they don't know what it means, that you pronate, and therefore you need the following shoe, and and people believe I pronate, and therefore I need a shoe. I have flat feet, and therefore I need the following. I have high arch, and therefore I need the following. There's like all these almost memes that just we can't seem to get out of people's minds, despite the fact that everybody knows they're not true. <laughs> it's crazy. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, you know, when people come in and they uh, they show me the heel of their shoe and they're worn right. on the outside of the heel of the shoe and they tell me that they're an underpronator, <laughs> you know, and I say, no, um, that's just where you strike. It's, you know, that's, that's, you know, you're a heel striker and that's where you're, you're striking, <laughs> you, you know, we can tell better by the forefoot if <laughs> what, what you're really doing, but you know, so anyhow, yeah, it's, there's a lot of misconceptions, you know, and, and we saw it all, you know, like people would come in and, you know, they, their you know, shoe is, is beat to hell. Right. And they, they, like, they show me the bottom of the shoe again and the carbon rubber, they're like, 
the bottom of the shoe is fine. <laughs> I'm like, yep, <laughs> the bottom right. of the shoe is fine. But, but everything, everything was, above that. The rest of it, yeah. So. yeah. Well, you yeah. know, look, I, I said it kind of as a joke at the beginning of this um, when I said, you know, like um, running store confidential or however I put it. But uh, this is a, this is actually a book or a podcast that needs to happen um, in the same way that Anthony Bourdain did Kitchen Confidential and <laughs> revealed what really goes on behind yeah. the scenes at your favorite restaurants yeah, and, you know, and five-star restaurants. And it changed the world. I mean, it really did. And I, it, no one's done that in this industry. And boy, that would be, that would be a super valuable thing. Um, I don't know if there's anyone who's Anthony Bourdain-like in, <laughs> in both. I mean, I was just an amazing writer. Um, if you knew nothing about the the food industry or the restaurant industry, it was still one of the most fascinating books ever. And of course, nobody buys fish on whatever day that that is. What's the day you don't buy fish? Is it whenever they're at the end of their weekly fish cycle? Right. Um, I, don't, I don't remember anymore. Anyway, but I don't know if, if it needs someone who's like been super popular, successful, who then had a change of heart, or if it just needs someone who can write well, who knows what's going on. Cause look, you and me are not the only people who know these stories. Right. Right. No, it's, well, it drives me crazy. Cause you know, you were just talking about the, the running show or running event. event. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like it drove us nuts because, you know, these, they'd have this best run shop of the the year, you know, and we would look at the criteria, you know, and we're like, Really? Like, well, what, this like is, what? What were they? So, <laughs> we'll take for instance your signage around the store. Like, you know, you had to have like everything labeled around the store, and it there was all this like stuff that just made it just feel like a sterile environment, like a retail mm-hmm. environment. Like when you walked into our shop, we wanted to blend into this is like this is Asheville, North Carolina. If 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 people don't know, Asheville, North Carolina is in the you know the the mountains here in in the western part of the state. You know, we have a ton of national forest here. Just, you know, we wanted to blend into that, not make it like this, like boom in your face type of thing. So we could never win run shop of the year, no matter what, because we didn't meet any of the criteria that they wanted as a run shop, you know? So when you see these things, it's like they're jumping through all of these hoops to, to make it this like retail shop rather than make it an actual, you know, just a nice place to be a run shop that, you know, people can go in and yeah, like they say it's for the ease of shopping and they wanted like, you know, merchandising in certain way and, you know, all of this, you know, branding and signage and stuff like that. We weren't into all that, you know? So it's, you know, there's a lot that, you know, I, like I just, I had to step away from like that, that running event because it just was, uh, you know, there's a lot of about it that I was like, this is just, you know, it's too much, you know, like it, you know, oh God, the point of sale system and, and, you know, all your ROI and, and, you know, all this, I just, I was like, listen, I, I want to have a successful business, but if it takes all this, yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah, yeah. that's just, it's just not, you know, not me. Well, you know, we, we tease this episode um, by talking about strengthening without weights and here we are 40 minutes in and we haven't talked about that at all. So let's say we make that transition. So people don't know this, but what happens when I, before I start one of these conversations, as I say, so think of anything you want to say, you might want to talk about and any entertaining or fun or controversial or, or um, curiosity inducing way of saying it. And, and we landed on um, strengthening with that without lifting weights. Uh, so what made you think that we might talk about that? And let's jump into that, shall we? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of times I had a conversation today with one of the runners I coach, I coach uh, a lot of adults 
and you know, we were discussing ways of potentially building volume. You know, and this runner was is very concerned with injury. There's a, a history with injury, and and we were trying to to do things to eliminate that and, and go over certain things. And you know, we've discussed all sorts of things. And I I brought up plyometrics. I said, mm. you know, like what about incorporating plyometrics, you know, like, do you feel that would be something and automatically the response is, I get nervous jumping up on boxes. <laughs> so so and, let's, so let's pause and define plyometrics from your perspective, since there are some people who have different definitions, but let's sure. talk about that. And then I want to hear the rest of that, how that story played out. Sure. So I would define plyometrics as a uh, explosive, powerful exercise that can be repeated without any ancillary device, like a weight or weighted vest or anything to that effect. Right, can I be a dork? Sure. Okay. So technically, <laughs> <laughs> so a true plyometric exercise is one that involves the stretch shortening cycle of the muscle. So basically it's not just say jumping onto a box, but what would make that a truly plyometric exercise is if you step off of a small box and then land and then jump. So you're getting that storage of energy on as you're doing the eccentric loading, as you're as you're resisting, or as you're landing basically, mm -hmm. and resisting the forces of gravity doing that. And then you are applying, kind of recycling some of that energy and then applying more into the jumping phase, if you will. Yeah. So right. um, so death jump onto a onto a box and um it would be a true plyometric. Now, there are other things. I mean, if you're just jumping onto a box, that can be useful. If you're just doing a depth jump, stepping off of a box and landing softly, that's useful as well. But those are like preludes to a genuine plyometric exercise. Yeah. And I hadn't even mentioned like, jumping onto a box in the conversation. You said that. Yeah. As soon as I talked about plyometrics, that's where the brain went. God, so, well, hold on. I, I got to interrupt with this. Of course, the biggest joke is the one of the most incredible plyometric exercises you can do is running. <laughs> yep. And that's, and that's exactly where I was going. Ah, that, damn it. Know. Sorry. I stole the punchline. <laughs> that's, okay. that's okay. So yeah, just running can you know, increase your strength, but Back you know, to the we, box. obviously we, we were trying to increase the volume of running yeah. uh, while, you know, maintaining strength and the ability to, um, to, to, you know, adapt to the workload, if you will. So, you know, I said, well, you know, Lydiard, Arthur Lydiard, who, you know, coach of, uh, of, you know, renowned fame oh, from New Zealand. Yeah. More, um, more, more Olympic and world champions and medalists than any coach in history. Incredible coming out of coach. A tiny, tiny yeah. little country. So I, I went through his, um, well, the foundation's certification nice. and nice. I've been working on level three and, um, you know, they they have a, a pyramid and you can look it up on Google, the Lydiard pyramid. You start at the base and the base is just that your aerobic base. But the next level up is strength building. And Lydiard believed in plyometric exercise to build strength. Yep. He used three simple drills. One was the, um, and everything was on a, a steep hill and mm -hmm. usually grass or, or dirt, but you, you can do it on the road. And usually either barefoot or in shoes that were just like ours. I'm good friends with a number of people from the Lydiard Foundation. And, you know, Arthur Lydiard, instead of, in addition to being a great coach, made shoes for a living and his shoes looked just like ours. <laughs> yep. So um, the first one was slow, high knee jog. So you were literally just jogging uphill, but accentuating the knee lift so that you come down and you're using that fascia to spring back up. The second one was high skips and it was defined as driving straight up. Okay. Um, and, and again, with the knee drive, they always showed a picture of Sebastian Coe. And, and for those that don't know Sebastian Coe, he was an amazing 800 meter and mile runner for Great Britain. And 
if you watch his form and see his drive, not only his knee drive, but his propulsion um, from his, his back kick, mm-hmm. it was it, the guy was amazing. So, but uh, second drill being high skips in which you drive the knee up and, and try to get higher. And then the third being bounding instead of going higher. Now you're driving force forward with a knee lift so that you can, uh, you know, you can compensate for the fact that you're trying to get more distance, um, laterally rather than vertically. So those three simple drills are what Lydiard incorporated. And he believed that building off of that, you would increase the uh, capacity of the musculoskeletal system because you've created this cardiac engine, right? This by, by doing an aerobic base, you've now got this huge cardiac engine because that builds faster than your musculoskeletal system. So the musculoskeletal system now has to catch up so that you can move on to the next level so that, you know, you don't get injured. So now we're building this musculoskeletal system by doing these plyometric exercises. So, uh, you know, I was, I was explaining this to the runner and saying, we don't necessarily have to do box jumps, you know, and we could just do, you know, skipping rope, you know, a simple exercise like that, you know, that's plyometric as well. You're, you're, you know, bounding off the, the fascia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that, that can be done to build the strength in that phase so that you stay healthy in the latter phases, because Lydiard built into, you know, longer intervals than shorter intervals and the shorter are more intense. And those are where you have the most propensity for, for injury because of the turnover. Usually if you have a, a, a inadequacy in form, Mm -hmm. it's going to be magnified at a higher speed. Yeah. So, you know, building all of this and, and kind of, you know, getting that knee lift and getting your, your neuromuscular response and getting these patterns down has less likelihood of those um, patterns being incorrect further up the chain. Well, I'm just going to do the simpler version in a way. Um, uh, let's bring it to weightlifting and then we'll come back to not weightlifting. Sure. There were, when I first got back into sprinting and I was getting injured a lot um, for a number of reasons, um, form issues being a big part, um, thinking I was still 20 being another big part when <laughs> I was 45. But I, there was a coach that I contacted and he said, how much can you deadlift? I said, I don't know. I've never done a deadlift before. And so I went and, you know, did like 250 pounds or something. He goes, what do you weigh? I said about 150. He goes, call me when you're over 300 (laughs) in deadlifting, not weight. And I said, uh, I said, uh, uh, okay. He goes, because once you can deadlift more than twice your body weight, your injury rate is going to go way down. And once you can get to two and a half times, it's going to go down again. And if you can get to three times, it's going to go way down. Now that doesn't mean you're going to not get injured because there's neurological things. And for me, some of my injuries were I have a compromised spine. And so I could literally feel that the neural signals weren't getting to the muscles at the right time. Mm. And that was causing problems. Um, but once I got over 300 pounds, you know, a lot of my injuries went away. Once I got over 350, same thing. Once I got over 400, that was really problematic because then my brain went, ah, crap, now I got to get to 500, um, which was a <laughs> stupid, stupid thought. So I luckily I was uh, savvy enough to not try and do that. But, but I think of... Um, hill drills in particular as poor man's weightlifting. And so um, so to your point, it's strengthening without a weight room. But if we're going to give people who want to try this um, some suggestions on how to do this safely, because talk about things that you can overdo, yeah, right. this is definitely one of them. What do you Absolutely. recommend for someone who wants to get started with? Actually, I want to make one more point before I, I let you answer that. The high knees thing, again, is part of a strengthening process, not that there's this idea, like when you go to a high school track meet in particular, you hear the parents yelling to their sprinter kids, lift your knees, high knees. Like, no, 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 no. It, it doesn't work that way. This is a drill for building strength, not this idea that you're supposed to actively lift your knees when you run. So 
anyway, with that as a prelude, somebody wants to uh, jump into, pun intended, into plyos. How do you recommend they do that? Um, so if you've never done plyometrics before, I simply say start with just the high knee jog and you know start with maybe two sets of three. And basically what you're looking for is about... I would say, and you know, it, it's hard to judge the grade of a hill, but if you were on a treadmill, if you could, you know, put that at a eight to 10% grade and understand what that would feel like outside, that's what we're really looking for. You can probably go steeper if you've had more experience, but for those folks that are just kind of getting into it, start with a, a more gradual hill. And really, and when, you say, it's, when you say two sets of three, can you be a little more specific? What's the yeah, three yeah, part of, of that? Yeah. So what you're going to do, and I'm, I'll go through the whole workout here, is you're okay. going to get a warm up in, whether that warm up be a, a simple walk for 10 to 15 minutes or a run, you know, whatever it takes for your muscles to, to activate and warm up. And then I would suggest just doing a few striders and that, that's just gradually increasing the speed. You don't necessarily have to get up to a sprint, but, you know, it, it, we want to increase speed and get your muscles prepared for doing this, you know, this more involved movement, if you will. And then once you, and, and by strides, you know, four to six, again, we're just trying to warm up here. Don't overdo it. You shouldn't be out of breath or straining by any means. Yeah. This, of recovery. This, yeah. And it's not for distance. It's like, you know, right. start, start slow, build up like 30 yep. meters, 40 meters, yep. no big deal, yep. just to get yep. things. Yep. And then full recovery, whatever you need for full recovery, whatever that looks like. If you need yeah. to walk, stand still, whatever, just recover, you know, do four to six of those. And then, you know, you want to be at the base of your hill and at the base of your hill, you're going to do your, uh, for beginners, what I say is do your drill up, you know, 20 to 30 seconds, depending on, and this again, should not be over exerting yourself. You should not feel exhausted, tired. You can be, I mean, you're going to feel a little bit by the time you get to the hill because you're going uphill, but you know, this isn't like you should be going at a, a, a pace in the jog that it's, you know, you're not breathing really hard. Okay. So it's, it's just, again, a jog. So 20 to 30 seconds up the hill. And then for our beginners, just walk back down to the start of the hill. That's your recovery. Okay. For more advanced folks, if you, if you're more fit, if you have a lot more fitness, you can rest at the top for a moment, catch your breath and then stride down. You can do a downhill stride. Okay. Get a little negative speed again, recover at the bottom. So you'll, you'll repeat that three times. And then I would just take like a walk or a jog again, just, you know, just kind of shake out maybe, you know, half mile, whatever it be, just kind of just flush your muscles out on the flat, then come back to the hill and do another set of three. And that's how, well, that's how I do it for beginners. More people that, you know, may have had, like they've done drills in high school, you know, they can add in the, the high skips, the high skips tend to be something that folks can can do and understand. I think it's the bounding that's the most. Well, um, let's pause on the skips. So literally, sure. like just you know, think about skipping on a flat, and you're doing the same thing. And you might want to try it on a flat first. Exaggerate that lifting up of the knee. You know, go for height when yep. you're skipping. So you're exaggerating it, and then do that up the hill. And yep. you'll you'll feel that for for both of these, that if you're doing it right. You're going to be feeling the hip extension. Basically, you're going to feel it in your butt if you do it right. Is the bottom right. line. Yep. And uh, and you you know you'll feel it other places too because it's not only working the muscles, it's working the fascia, it's working the ligaments and tendons. But the primary mover, the thing that's moving you up the hill, is that hip extension, which is your glutes and your hamstrings. Yep. I do have a, a YouTube video. Oh, great. Um, we'll link to it. My, 
my son uh, recorded it for me and it was probably on a hill that was too steep and I was way out of shape. So I probably <laughs> need to do it again, but um, I do, I do have a video of it. Um, so what I suggest with, um, if you're going to incorporate the high skips is you alternate. So your first set on the hill, you would do the, the slow high knee jog, come back down. And then the, the second time you do the hill, I would do the high skip mm. and then I would just alternate back and forth. And, and you can do, you know, just do a set of six, you know, just alternating that way. You could also just do a thread, a set of three. So mm-hmm. three hills with a high knee jog and then recover, and then a set of three with the high skips, and then you can build into it and do two sets of each. And then again, the, you know, the, the bounding, that's the, that's the third set. That's the most advanced. That's the hardest one. That's the one I suggest that, you know, you have somebody that understands bounding and can give you a little bit more. I work with my high school kids for a lot of the season, <laughs> trying to get them to understand bounding and what yeah. I'm looking for, because I can, you know, I can, I can show it right. But for them to physically do it and to build the strength, to be able to do it, it's, it's, it's quite a difficult drill. It is the most advanced and the, it requires the most of the body. It seems simple, but the thing that people tend to do is they just reach their foot out too far in front of them rather right. than getting their foot down underneath them. Again, they're thinking about, because we have eyes in front of our head, we're thinking about getting our foot out instead of getting yes. our foot down and pushing back. And back, back. Yeah. 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 So it's, it really is that backwards push and extending. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you'll feel it in your hip the most because you are really driving and, and opening up that, that front, that hip, that if you're sitting all day, you're really going to feel it because yeah. you are really opening up those hips. Again, that's, that's the, the most advanced. And the way I typically recommend doing those is you do your high knee jog, three of those, three hills of those rest, and then three high sit, uh, three hills of high skips mm-hmm. rest, and then three bounding and then rest. So, and you can alternate them if you want, again, you can mix it up. It's however you want to get it done, whatever your body, sometimes my body's just a little bit more tired. So I'll do high knee jog, high skip bounding. That'll be one set rest. And then I'll do three sets like that, mm-hmm. just depending on how I feel. Again, if it's too hard, like, you know, try to find a, a more gradual hill. Uh, again, you don't want it to be too hard. The focus is yeah. on form. As soon as that starts to break down, stop. Yeah. yeah. So like, don't even like, if your second set, you're, you know, your bounding starting to break down, stop with the bounding. You know, you can probably still do the high knee jog and maybe even the high skips, but it's like, again, as soon as it starts to break down, you need to stop. Yeah. And similarly, you know, get a bunch of rest and you're not going to do this every day. You're not even going to do it three right. days a week. You yeah, know, no, it's, yeah. right. I mean, you know, the true Lydiers, they did it like five days a week, but like, well, that's here a whole we're, game. That, yeah. And that's his elites. Again, he was yes. saying he trained some of the best Olympians that the you know the world has seen. So, you know, keep in mind, this is something that you can do once or maybe twice a week. You know, like I, my athletes, the most I have them do is twice a week. You know, so, you, you just made me think of something. Um, so there's a, an exercise that it's called a Nordic hamstring curl. And I'll let people look it up. Basically, you're kneeling, something's holding your feet down. And then you try to um, lower yourself to the ground as slowly as you can. Right. And um, I was working on this like three days a week and um, not making a lot of progress. And then I went down to once a week and I just did a little more volume that week. So I did I did um, five sets of five. Now let's be clear on the first set, you know, I could get down. I mean, I, I can actually go pretty far, but the first set was really good. The second set, you know, the first three were okay. And then the last two were not so good. The, you know, the third and fourth set were kind of like that. And the fifth set, uh, you know, I, 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 there was nothing there. But yeah. suffice it to say, doing it <laughs> once a week 
within three or four weeks, you know, now I can just touch my nose to the ground in total control. And if I have a little flex in my hip, I can pull myself back up too. And I'm again, I'm almost 60. So not the point of that is not to show off. The point of that is to say <laughs> I needed the recovery. Yeah. I wasn't really yeah. giving it to myself. And once I gave myself the, the, the stimulus and then enough recovery time, that's what built the strength faster than right. trying to do more volume uh, yeah. over, over the course of the week. Yeah. I, I have a youngin, you know, who is um, lifting and I was going to try to incorporate some some plyometrics just to work on technique, but the combination was too much. Too much. Yeah. And so he wanted to continue to lift. So you know, I'm I'm not going to deter him. So I pulled off the drills. Yeah. And you know, and then we were working out and you know doing our thing. And I, I told him, I said, it's going to take you a while because he's you know he's lifting with a coach, which is great, but it's going to take you a while to get used to lifting and running. Yeah. So, I can't program too much because he's like, I noticed you gave me another rest day. Why is that? I said, because, you know, I can, we're just adding too much fatigue. I was yeah. like, you know, we need recovery there. You know, that's a huge part of this. We only make adaptations if we can recover. That's when we make our adaptations. Yeah, highly underrated. You reminded me when I was in college, there were some gymnasts that I knew who trained with their parents through junior high and high school and only trained three days a week. And then they came to college and trained every day. They're up until their college career, never had an injury. As soon as they got to college and started training five days a week, couldn't get rid of injuries. Right. And so people just really underestimate the stimulus rest phenomenon. Yeah. So I hate to do this because I know we could keep doing this all day, every day. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, unlike plyos, we could keep doing this forever. <laughs> but um, if people want to find out more about you know what you've been up to, or if they want to contact sure. you for any reason, how might they do that? My website is M mrrunningpains.com. And I am on Instagram, Aaron Saft, MR Running Pains, uh, Facebook, I'm there, uh, YouTube channel, Aaron Saft. And I've got the MR Running Pains podcast as well. So Beautiful. all, yep, you look up MR Running Pains, you'll find me. <laughs> Love it. Um, Aaron, it's been, again, it's been a total treat. And I, I really appreciate, like I said, when I was on your podcast, you know, you're one of the, the handful of people and more and more every day, happily, who are really willing to dive in and think about this stuff, not only deeply, but logically and critically. And that's what's so important because we've been so inundated with propaganda for so long that, you know, when fish don't know they're in the water is sort of the idea. Um, and we don't know that we've been in swimming in some shark infested waters um, for, for quite a while. So dude, first of all, once again, thank you, thank you, thank you. And for everyone else, thanks for joining us. And um, uh, a reminder, go back over to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You'll find previous episodes, how to engage with us. You can subscribe to hear about new episodes. Um, and if you want to drop me an email with any recommendations or suggestions, people who you think should be on the podcast, people who like Aaron and I couldn't, uh, stop agreeing with each other or people who think I have my head firmly up my butt, either one of those, that's okay with me. Um, drop me a note uh, for any reason, really. I'm at move, M-O-V-E, at jointhemovementmovement.com. And until next time, as always, go out, have fun, and live life feet first. <laughs>